I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Well, very often on this show, an individual will act as our guide to a place, a theme, maybe perhaps an institution or a time. But really, on this week's episode, it is the person himself to whom I draw your attention my guest would not, I think, quite approve of that approach. He sees this city as one big machine and himself a small cog within it. But he's also someone with two very different perspectives on London. He's very politically engaged, and the next time you board a bus, he might well be driving it. It's Friday the 20th of June 2014. I'm N. Quentin Wolfe, and this is Londonist Out Loud. Hey baby, let me take you down to a place of strange sights and sound. You ain't never seen the light before, just a stone throw from your front door. Hey baby, sit out me see, see the air, land and sea. Some creep, some saw down the road, jam brand store. My heart aches for some far off place. Well, hello, hello. I am in South Kensington. And, of course, if you're in South Kensington, there are a lot of big, iconic buildings that can distract you from what's right next to them. And uh, such was the case when I found myself in front of the Royal Albert Hall and missed the fact that next to it was my destination for today's podcast. I'm in the RCA, and the first thing that happened to me was that I got directed away from what looked like a big gathering by a chap wearing a dicky bow. So I know there's something going on here today and I'm with a, a chap called Joe Carr and he has a long and complicated job title which he has advised me to steer away from so suffice to say for the moment he's department head here at the RCA and he's also a bus driver hi Joe hi so my name is Joe Carr but it's spelt K-E-R-R and that's a Scots-Irish name and I'm fiercely independent of of you know the Brits not not mispronouncing a Scots-Irish name but also I get sick of being called Joker. It's a bit stupid. People think I've made my name up. But no, that's my real name. Well, I was, I was genuinely worried that I'd been sent here on some sort of wild goose chase and there was going to be no guest at all. Yeah, well, it does sound like a musical star, doesn't it? There was a, there was a famous musical star whose name was Nosmo King and he claimed it was double swing doors, you know, that said no smoking on it. But there's also somebody at the Royal College of Art called Joe King. And I used to get his mail, and he'd get my mail, because nobody could believe there was someone called Joe King and Joe Kerr working in the same institution. But I'm Joe Carr. Right, that's going to be seared into the mind of the listener. And, well, I've been making discoveries aplenty as we've been preparing for the interview, and the first thing I've discovered is that you are an historian working here at the RCA. What's your area? 
Um, yeah, I'm an architectural historian, an urban historian, and particularly I'm a historian of London, which is one of the reasons you might be talking to me, I guess. And I teach students, but particularly architecture students, about the history of architecture, the history of cities, and that kind of thing. Um, and as an excuse, I do a lot of London as well. We take them out walking. So we're kind of embed students who've come from all over the world in the, the actual fabric of London, and that's what I love to do. And if you look out my window, which the listener can't, but you can, you know, what do you see? You see the Albert Hall, great 19th century building, and then even more superlative, you see the Royal College of Art building itself, which is a late 50s brutalist structure of the kind that, you know, every hipster in the land is falling in love with right now. As brutalism goes, it's not one of the worst examples, I must say. <clears throat> no, but there is a great story, which is, again, the listener can't see this, but they can imagine that the Albert Hall is this beautiful red brick, very, very bright, vivid object. The RCA is a dirty, grey, concrete building. Well, the story goes, and I actually think this is true, that when it got planning in the late 50s, they said it had to uh, blend with the Royal Albert Hall next door because it's a very sensitive site. And then they cleaned the Albert Hall. But, of course, they couldn't clean the dirty, dark grey concrete building because that's its colour, you know. So now they look as bad as different as you could possibly imagine. Because that, that was the time of smogs and pollution aplenty, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm old enough just to remember that London, which was every building in London was dark grey and, and the colour of soot, yeah. And so, yes, the Albert Hall would have been that colour one day and now it most certainly isn't. I mean, it seems quite obvious, but uh, the fact that there are historians and built environment specialists and so forth going on here, I'm, I'm sure the purview of the college is wide. What does the college do and who does it do it for? The Royal College of Art is a, is a wonderful and unique institution. It's in Albertopolis, the name given to this area, set up after the Great Exhibition, which has the Science Museum and the Victorian Albert Museum and the Natural History Museum and so forth. So it's a kind of branch of Victorian knowledge. And we are, we believe, the probably the oldest state art school um, in existence. We were founded in 1837. We're postgraduate only. We're one of the very few postgraduate only art and design schools. And we teach virtually every imaginable branch of, of art and design, from painting through to architecture. And, you know, we have a whole army of people like me, historians and theorists, who try and give some context and some kind of broader understanding to the incredibly concentrated studio training of architects, artists, painters, sculptors, industrial designers, interaction designers, fashion designers, graphic designers, illustrators, and the whole uh, panoply of, of things that we do here. There's a little bit of me surprised to hear architects in that list. I don't know why I imagine that they would be... Clearly, there are artistic qualities required to, in architecture, but I sort of imagine that as being more closely allied with engineering or, or, or the building trade or something of that sort. Well it's funny you should say that because that's an argument that's been going on for about a century and a half. Amongst architects themselves, where do they belong? Are they a faculty of engineering? Are they artists? Are they a profession at all? And honestly they argue about that all the time. We're quite unusual not unique but we're unusual to have a school of architecture embedded in an art school and that obviously produces a very very different kind of a very specific kind of architectural training and we're also quite small this is a very small place whereas architecture schools are often very very large so the RCA has its own kind of unique spin on disciplines that you could do elsewhere. So with postgrads, and I've run into a few of the students just on the way up to your office here, they strike me as being uh, people who have 
at least uh, fairly well established artistic tastes already they look like they're self-branding and all that kind of stuff what do you spend your time doing individual mentoring or is it big classes or what's your day well my my main activity is i'm in charge of the dissertation which is this big written project that it's a two-year ma and all first-year ma students have to do this big long ten thousand word dissertation and my program which i run administers the dissertation and i particularly tutor students in doing their dissertations in architecture and interior design but we do lectures we do seminars we do visits we do tours we do a fairly kind of varied stuff and it is fantastic working with bright young minds who aren't that young as you say i mean the average age of students here is 27 28 and so we're dealing with quite mature people and you know they are self-selecting and they're very very clever and you know you you, you can't go wrong, really, when you're working with bright minds like that. And these are, by the sounds of their, their ages, these aren't necessarily people coming off the back of a, a degree course 2021. What's going on there? Well, we do certainly get that. Um, but, uh, you know, these days people do their gap year, their year out, they're building a school in Nicaragua year, whatever it might be. Um, and then often, you know, they have to repay student loans and all that kind of stuff and earn some money and, you know repay mum and dad if not if nothing else and so it's often two or three years before they come back here interesting enough the the kind of changes in student funding means that probably the age will drop because of course uh, students don't have to start repaying their loan as while they're still in education so i think the incentive to um to stay on from a ba straight into an ma will get will get stronger and stronger but it is scary you know we get students coming here who are already on i don't know 15 20 thousand pounds worth of debt and then they've still got to do two years here, and we're very expensive. We're an extraordinarily expensive place to get an education. So what I've, I've got to ask you for context. If you're an English student, you'd pay £9,000 a year in, in fees alone. But that, that's not the cost of living in London, you know, the mo- one of the most expensive cities in the world. If you're an international student, you'd be paying nearly three times that much per annum to come and study at the RCA. It's an incredible uh, investment of money. And what I find so curious is that I'm old enough that I had a free education. You know, I went to university. I did postgraduate study at at the taxpayer's expense. I got my fees paid. I got, you know, I got my food and board paid. And I, and it was a right, you know. And the first debt that somebody of my generation would ever accumulate would be a mortgage. Well, I've got students now who have mortgage-sized debts and they haven't even entered the labour market yet, and they certainly haven't got a house, you know. So they're going to have to get another debt on top of that one uh, to, to own a house, for instance. It's scary. All I know is that there's a shed load of debt out there. And, of course, what makes it even more frustrating is that we know that this is ideologically driven, not financially driven, because, of course, it's just announced recently that they've reached the point now where the fees hike and the level of default has meant that they're now collecting less money from a higher fee than they used to from a lower fee you know so this is just an ideological program this is not about the country cannot afford to educate its young there's talk as well of course of selling off the student debts book yeah and that's a toxic debt you know of the kind you thought we'd have learned about toxic debts by now but you know what are they selling it off at 20p in the pound or something ridiculous like that you know we're back in the subprime mortgage land and we always used to say that we had to compete with our with, you know, with our natural competitors, let's say Germany, which seems to do quite well compared to us. Well, Germany introduced tuition fees, sat around, thought for a while, thought, no, this is a really stupid idea. And this year, they've abolished them. So Germany, no money. UK, £9,000. How are we competing? 
I suppose as well, of course, in the arts, it's not so pinned down by a particular language or anything like that. It, it must be international to some degree. I know there are specialisms, again, perhaps within architecture, for example, around legislation and so forth. But what are the, I suppose we've got to be careful about this, but what are the work prospects for somebody coming through an institution like this into what I've always thought of as being a less certain field of creativity and artistry? Well, our students generally do quite well in the sense that we place the majority of students who come out of here in, a, in employment related to the thing they train to do. But on the other hand, we are still a very traditional liberal arts college. You know, The idea is, is that we do education here for the good of doing education, that it's part of a general process of learning. It's not vocational. So we're not training up... Um, well, we do train up vehicle designers who then go out to design vehicles, but you know, it's not it's not a production line just to produce people who have a particular set of of, of um, employable skills. It is about the kind of belief in higher education as being something that is per se good for people, you know, and, and is and is part of a broadening of people's minds and, and imaginations. It's very sad at the moment that that particularly in arts that is being heavily devalued by political policy, you know we're seen as surplus to requirements. And whilst I've always said that higher education should never just be justified on the basis of its contribution to GDP, you know, that's not what we're here for. Nonetheless, the idea that art and design doesn't do, very, doesn't do anything good for Britain is kind of laughable, isn't it, given our reputation both in art and design uh, internationally. Beyond that reputation, I wonder what tangibles you'd, you'd point to. If people were saying, well, it doesn't make a direct contribution into the communal pot and times are tight, and you know, why is art valuable to us? Quite often, art is associated with recreation um, no, no, and, and think, sort of intangibles. No, I, th- I, I think um, you know, art and culture are an invaluable and an essential bedrock of, of kind of civilised life and of citizenship as well. You know, it's what makes us who we are. But, you know, we produce industrial designers, we produce vehicle designers, as I've said, we produce interaction designers, we produce communication designers, we, do, we produce the people who actually do kind of rather essential jobs in society as well. And they're not just about aesthetics, are they? They're about usability, for example. Uh, yeah, totally. And, you know, I mean, they are absolutely kind of professions that are necessary and are called on very heavily. And we have an extraordinary roll call of, of alumni, you know, who proved that actually coming here does do some good in those terms as well as in the general one of getting a good education but it does feel a little bit at the moment in art and design being like kind of standing on the walls of rome you know with the goths and the visigoths and the vandals outside and they're saying oh it's all right let us in you know we're not going to cause you any problems you know we'll, we'll make you very welcome and you know oh no you won't it feels like you're kind of defending something right now which i find very sad what is being done to higher education in this country at the moment is not only quite frightening and quite dangerous but also potentially irreversible you know britain also has an enviable international reputation in terms of education and particularly of higher education you know we're up there and to to be sort of forcing it into this very narrow straitjacket and at the same time doing all those other things like outsourcing various bits of it you know um because we're only just the we're a close relative of the nhs in terms of the way the government is treating us and so things like catering or security or maintenance, all those things suddenly start getting outsourced, providing jobs for the boys and stuff like that. And I'm a trade unionist. I'm, I'm the union rep for this place. I, I hate to see people's terms and conditions being slowly eroded in those ways. Their wages going down, their security going down, you know, 
we don't have anyone here on zero hours contracts, but you can be sure that the contractors who now supply the staff who we used to directly employ have people on zero hours contracts. So there's nothing about the, the current situation that makes me feel particularly optimistic. It's a bad time to be in the public sector. And what's worse is that my generation, but I think most generations, you know, believe in public service. They believe in working in jobs that somehow are for the greater good of, of society itself. People go into those jobs because they believe that's what they want to do. And right now, it feels like they're laughing at us. You did what? You went into a job because you thought there was some greater good involved, you know, not huge wages or, you know, what you could do for yourself or how much you could speculate. Me and Michael Gove, we would not understand each other if we tried to talk about that notion of public good or public service, I suspect. You mentioned that straitjacket as well. Perhaps we could uh, develop that idea a little bit because there is emphasis being put on certain subjects and not on others. Yeah, they came up with this very clever acronym, which, um, you know, it, it, it conveys a lot. There, there is this emphasis on what they call STEM subjects, and that is an acronym for science, technology, engineering and maths. And the acronym itself suggests that somehow they're at the core of what we should do and everything else is kind of superfluous. And I think that's actually getting reflected down now into primary and secondary curricula as well. You know, anything that isn't those sort of core disciplines is, is becoming sort of devalued and, and pushed to one side. So, yeah, uh, you suggested earlier that art was, was perhaps recreational. I think that's very much how it's being presented in government policy. And that's the direction we're going in. And, you know, it makes me very, very angry. It really does. I, I don't know what to do about it except protest and argue and, and fight and so on and, and to carry on teaching because I love students, you know. I should I should emphasise that I don't think that the arts is purely recreational no, no, by no, any no. means. <laughs> no, no, no. No, I, I pretty you're quoting an opinion, a, a kind of prevailing opinion, totally. What is the idea there? Do you think? I know for quite some time there's been the thought abroad that we are creating a generation of sort of media studies people who don't do anything that's of great practical or uh, economic consequence or even doing the sort of good that you're talking about it's just people who know how to put a tv show together is there a thought perhaps that people who are part of the humanities or part of the arts are there because they they have this sort of passion that takes them in that direction whereas uh, at the moment we need to uh, push the fader forward on the practical engineering and technological skills that have perhaps dwindled a little bit over the last 20 30 years say um i think there is there is certainly a desire that's held not just by this government but by potential employers of certain kinds and promoted by quite a lot of newspapers that education must be vocational. It's about learning a set of skills that make you immediately useful in the marketplace. But why would the marketplace be the generator of, of education? You know, why does it have to be that crude? I mean, for me, I look at my students here and I'm thinking this is the last chance some of them will have in their life to speculate and explore and dream, you know. And surely those are skills they need to, to be really brilliant professionals out in the world, is to have had that space to reflect and consider and be ambitious and make mistakes, not simply be driven along a path that, you know, that, that um, puts them straight into some kind of given form of employment with those necessary set of skills. They can pick those up on the job, you know. This is the place to explore and imagine, you know, reach for the stars and maybe not quite get there. But, you know, in education, it's the one place where glorious failure can be valued much, much higher than, than kind of safe and steady achievement. 
And once you get into professional life, then obviously that kind of turns on its head. Yeah, that issue of employment is an interesting one, isn't it? Because, of course, a lot of people, particularly in this kind of business, but I guess just the, the direction that you mentioned zero-hours contracts, for example, are taking is sort of effectively putting a lot of people in a freelance position and uh, many of the people in the arts and design fields would be freelancing anyway. And I wonder if there's a degree to which the RCA prepares people to be entrepreneurial as well as skillful in their field yeah and particularly art and design i mean you know the 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 professional models for employment are largely uh, entrepreneurial i mean you might go and work for a large organization but otherwise you're going to be setting up your design studio or you know working as an artist so no absolutely uh, we we operate a very entrepreneurial entrepreneurial culture here so how does that manifest itself i suppose the easiest way of saying that is that the rca nothing's given to you Everything you need is here, but you've got to go and find it. You've got to go and push for it. You know, it's not like you're just fed in the beginning and spoon fed for two years, and and you kind of come out having been pampered, and then oh my god, it doesn't this isn't how the real world works? No, no, everything, everything can be made available to you, but you've got to make the most of it. And you know, at this stage of education, at MA level, students are here because they've elected to be here. It's not because their parents have pushed them into it. It's not because they just couldn't be asked to go out and get a job for another three years. It's because they've made this decision to commit to this. And so that focus means that, you know, they are already inclined to make the most of it. And if they fail to avail themselves of an opportunity, if they avoid doing an assignment, if they kind of take the easy way out and live, you know, the sort of traditional student life, then they've only wasted their own money. That's their own fault, as it were. So by and large, students here are motivated they're not just heads down we just want to get a better job at the end of it thank god you know because everyone thought that that's what was going to happen to students and that they'd lost the politics you know people of my age went to university to drink too much take drugs and change the world and do other things um and there was this belief that somehow students had just become you know all they saw education as was this means to more lucrative forms of employment well that's not true these students are ethical they're political their politics may be different than ours and you know and elections recently have suggested that's not such a bad thing either but they you know they really care about the world and and they're the people who are going to tackle the issues that politicians are patently failing to do around climate change and sustainability and things like that these are things that matter to them and they're becoming experts in what we might do about those things but you know having gone and marched with them on demos against hikes in tuition fees and so on they're not disenfranchised they're you know they're smart people they're passionate people and they have very strong ideas about the future of us all my sense is that they're ignored as a as an age group i think that i hear politicians vying for the greyer vote and the working vote and ignoring younger people i think perhaps with the belief that they're not going to go out there and vote ignore them at your peril you know In this fees thing, yeah, sure, the government won that. But at the same time, they took on the brightest, most articulate, most imaginative people in the land. And intellectually, the government got a kicking from these students. The the case they presented was fantastic. The Lib Dems in particular. Well, I was going to say, you know, we can immediately um, uh, date this podcast and possibly outdate it. But, you know, Nick Clegg is, is now reaping what he sowed those years ago when he reneged on all his promises about student fees you know those students won't forget and i would put some small money that it's not just the lib dems who've been stuffed that nick clegg's going to lose his seat in sheffield hallam you know that was a very very big portrayal against people who you, you may be right they may have ignored them and if they did 
it's going to come back and bite them. On the shelves here in the immaculately tidy office of Joe Carr, there are a number of London buses, and that reminds me of another uh, string to your bow. What's going on there? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's funny. I get asked this from time to time. Um, it's an unusual career, uh, kind of combination of careers. I'll give you that. I'm a, a lecturer at a postgraduate university and a London bus driver. But do you know, no one's ever offered me a full-time job. Not true. I once had a full-time job and I left it, my God, uh, in 1980. How long ago is that? A long time ago. You know, it's so long ago, I can't even remember how long. 34 years ago. Um, And I was a bus conductor. That was my first ever proper job. And I did that for four or five years before I went to university. And that was the last time, apart from being a student, that I ever did anything full-time. So I've always done a mixture of things. And I like that. I, I, I wouldn't be very good at doing one thing. And the academy... It's not an ivory tower, but it's its own little world, and it can be quite separate from the real world at times. So I like the fact that I do something very, very, very different. You know, Sitting here in the RCA, the, the great British public are not particularly evident. Driving a bus, the great British public are in your face in, in huge numbers. You know, So I like the fact that they're very opposite. And in every conceivable way, we're sitting in SW7. I drive a bus out of Tottenham Bus Garage in N17, you know, the other end of London, in every way, geographically the other end of London, socially the other end of London, you know. So uh, it gives a very different perspective. What the two things have in common, again, is this notion of public service. I like being that. Being a bus driver, you know, I'm a very, very tiny cog in a very, very big machine. But nonetheless, you know, all of those cogs are necessary. And somehow or other, in my modest way, I make a little contribution to the city that I love, and I really love the city, not uncritically. Who could love London uncritically? But I am a Londoner to my core. I do a little bit of making the city work, and and I love that feeling. You know, there are times on a kind of damp Tuesday morning in November, sitting in Ilford bus station at 5am, I think, what am I doing? But other times, you know, driving a bus through London, big 12.5-tonne, double-decker, 10-metre-long red bus, you know, full of people, doing something useful. It's great. Are there comparable moments here when you wonder what you're doing here? Uh, oh, yes. Oh, oh, indeed there are. Yeah, yeah. That would be sitting on a committee, probably, or something like that. And it's really weird, because people say, oh, driving a bus, that's really stressful. No. Being an academic, that's really stressful, you know. The bus bit is the least stressful bit of my week. Yeah, sure, you know, I don't have to... I don't have people shout and scream and abuse and spit at me when I'm at university, which happens on the bus. And they don't try and drive their BMW straight at me in, in college. They do that when I'm on my bus. But nonetheless, actually working in this professional environment at a time when, you know, it's it's under kind of massive threats, that's really stressful. Driving a bus is, ah, that's what you do, isn't it, you know? Uh, we're going to take a break. I'm going to get under the skin of Joe Carr and the bus driver's life in London, be it part-time or full-time, and maybe talk a little bit about architecture too. Having an annual travel card is good. Your travel is sorted for the year, with no queuing at ticket offices, no getting caught out with an expired ticket, and a hefty discount on buying monthly tickets. Plus, there are other benefits, like cheaper UK rail travel and two-for-one deals on London stuff. However... Not all of us have employers who can give us a season ticket loan, and few of us can afford to pay thousands of pounds up front to get one. Now there is another way. Commuter Club gives you access to the big discounts offered by annual travel cards, while keeping all the flexibility of buying monthly tickets. 
Join Commuter Club and you'll make 11 payments at the same cost as a monthly travel card, including their 5.6% interest rate, for a full year of travel. Best of all, with Commuter Club, there is no lock-up or cancellation fees. So, what will you do with the money you save? Find out more and sign up to start saving at www.commuterclub.co.uk forward slash Londonist. You're listening to Londonist Out Loud. I'm in Quentin Wolf. I'm with Joe Carr with, at the RCA and I'm looking at Joe Carr's flares. Well, they're not flares, but they're, they're big trousers. This is part of your uniform back in uh, the late 70s, early 80s, and the end of your bus conducting job there. We're getting a wave from a black and white picture. Joe with the ticket machine, where you turn the handle, I think, and the ticket comes out of the top there. And what's that you've got on your feet? Um, yes, you, that's the famous Gibson ticket machine I've got around my waist, the thing that everyone of a certain age remembers. And on my feet are very high steel cap Dr. Martins, the essential piece of footwear for a conductor. It was it was actually quite dangerous being a conductor in the late 70s. There was an awful lot of uh, aggravation. There was a certain amount of, a lot of racial tension, um, and you could get attacked. I mean, most conductors got hit over the head at least once in their, in their careers, and, and often several times. The one thing that's guaranteed to make people lose interest in hurting you is if you kick them in the shin with a steel cap Dr. Martin. You know, they just sort of lose their will to do an awful lot of things. You know, It's just one of those feelings where you just want to think, oh, whatever, and walk away. So uh, those those Dr. Martins saved my life on more than one occasion, I'm certain. Well, now that's interesting because I know a lot of people were coming over at that time and taking jobs on buses. And presumably that was uh, adding fuel to sort of racial uh, fires, was it? Um, well, the chronology, I'm not quite that old. Uh, most people working on the buses had already arrived by that time. You know, I'm, I'm not suggesting that was the first time. We- <laughs> the, the Windrush had arrived some years before this. But when I... When had, we, I had we gone to the Americas by this point? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I had that Columbus on my bus once. Uh, now, in the late 70s, there, the, there, was a kind of, there was a very strong racial mix on the buses. But it was the biggest group, single group, was still white, UK white. And then there were two other large groups of, of um, black staff, mostly from the Caribbean, and Asian staff, mostly from the Asian subcontinent. Um, and there, were, there was a degree of tension sometimes between those groups, although everyone worked together and knew each other very well. It did strike me, it struck me a few years ago. I'd completely forgotten. I had this sudden realisation that in my old... I used to work in Stamford Hill Bus Garage then, and in the canteen, there'd be three rows of tables. And one set of tables was where white crews sat. One set of tables was where black crews sat. And the tables in the middle was kind of where people, anyone could sit, you know. And it might be that if you were a driver or a conductor working with someone of a different cultural origin than yourself, that at lunchtime, sometimes you might split apart from and go and eat with different people. Or you might sit on those middle tables. That was kind of unspoken. But there were people in my garage who were who were National Front activists, you know. Equally, they were militant, hard-left trade unionists, you know. And I think it was a... We were the generation who, who I hope, did as much as any generation to cement a sense of kind of proper cultural diversity and multiculturalism in London. Um, I'm punk generation. I came to London and punk started, and I became a young, fierce punk. But, you know, what did we do? We listened to reggae and uh, went to reggae gigs. We weren't always 100% welcome, uh, particularly at kind of big raster events. But nonetheless, there were kind of links forged then in, 
in popular culture, in youth culture, that I think were really important to the way London developed since. And I'm, you know, I'm passionate about that aspect of London. I love living in this extraordinarily diverse city. And I think I'm really excited by things that are happening in London right now in terms of diversity. Can we jump on that? Because, of course, that's been at the heart of the political groundswell, I suppose, around parties like UKIP and and right across Europe of course there's this uh, it's not always far right either it's sort of far far left sometimes as well Um, but the feeling that uh, integration is not working and that people are it's it's always the cliche isn't it coming over here taking our jobs what what are the what's the positive argument for integration as far as you're concerned well the argument has never been true it certainly wasn't true of the London I knew 40 years ago and the London I live in now is this thing of taking jobs you know, the reason I, when I was 18 that I became a bus conductor and developed my now lifelong passion for London buses um, was because they couldn't get anyone to do the damn job. So they used to pay us an awful lot of money to do fairly mundane work, you know. I was an 18-year-old. I came to London. I got a job as a bus conductor. I was earning fabulous sums of money, you know. When I eventually gave it up and went to university, it was like becoming really poor again because I'd earned so well you know certainly enough for a young man to lead a really really good life in London and to be honest I don't see any evidence of jobs being taken right now you know the reason why there are huge communities of people from Central and Eastern Europe for instance is precisely because of course we need those people doing jobs and we know that they contribute massively to the economy but I'm not even interested in those sorts of abstract arguments you know I just think London... London's developed its vibrancy for 2,000 years on the basis that, you know, the only thing that qualifies you to be a Londoner is you're in London. And I tell this to my students every year, you know. If you ask how many... In in a room full of students, you say, how many people here were born in London? And you're lucky if you get two or three hands go up. But the point is, I have to say to them, is that it doesn't matter. You're Londoners now. You know, nobody walks down the street saying, Oi, can I see your qualifications for being here? No one questions you on how you sound or what kind of language you speak. You know, you're a Londoner because you're in London. And that's been true of London for a very, very, very long time. And I like that. I like that fact that we all, you know, own or don't own equally this city and and we all have the same kind of part in its life. And I'm really glad that the place where UKIP failed was London. I would be horrified to meet large numbers of Londoners who somehow thought that that their city was or their livelihood or their culture or whatever was being taken away from them because if they thought that they're wrong apart from anything else you know um and i love it now you know i i drive a bus down say west green road up in up in tottenham and you see shops by the side of the road now and they say along the side we sell greek turkish arabian uh lithuanian polish russian arabic Chinese food. I mean, really. And you think, that's really cold, isn't it? You know, forget Nigel Farage, forget David Cameron. You know, a bunch of shopkeepers in a in a kind of slightly hard-pressed place like Tottenham have got it just about right, it seems to me. I must say, yeah, I've never understood why the sight of a sign in a shop window that's written in Polish is, is offensive or threatening to somebody. I find it rather exotic and interesting, and it makes me want to go in the shop and find out what this... Uh, you know, I'm, I'm a great one for buying tins of stuff that have got uh, writing I don't understand on them and just finding out what, what's in there and trying try to cook it. Yeah, yeah, and yeah, I lived in Hackney for many years, and you know, the local off-licence, God knows where he struck his deals from, 
But, you know, if you wanted Guinness, the Guinness was Nigerian Guinness, you know. So <laughs> somehow or other, it was cheaper for him to get Guinness from Lagos than it was to get Guinness from Dublin. Or in back then, it was still being brewed in London, you know. But that's kind of cold, isn't it? And, you know, we're all anonymous in London, you know. None of us had that much purchase on the place, you know. London picks us up, eats us up, and we'll, we'll spit us all out again, you know. You mentioned Tottenham. What's your route? I work on basically you work when you work in a bus garage you work on all the routes that come out of that bus garage although if I was full time I'd probably only be working on one of them so for anyone who wants to know the routes I work on are the 41 which is ooh my god uh, <laughs> a hard press route um, I work on the 76 why is it, why is it a hard press route um, lots of bus routes in London just go in and out right they go from the edge to the middle that's fine that's what a lot of journeys that people want to make but the other journeys the journeys that so many people want to make are across London you know across North London for instance and so the routes that do that and there's two routes really several routes that do that the 41 is one of the main ones they're so busy they're relentlessly busy and also because they cut the other way they kind of cut across boundaries of culture or class or economy in different ways and it means that they're edgier there's a lot more tension and um you know, you can either like that or you don't like it. I love the buses that go from the edge to the middle. Uh, I like, I love being in central London on a bus. So my favourite route is the 76. It's a fantastic bus route. Goes all the way from Tottenham, all the way to Waterloo. Goes through the city, goes down Fleet Street, goes over Waterloo Bridge. Driving a bus over Waterloo Bridge. I mean, you know, I might do that six, eight times in a day, but I still love it. I was looking out of one of the buildings on the South Bank not long ago, looked at Waterloo Bridge and counted 17 buses on there at one time. Yeah, and the thing is, is that unlike if you can count 17 buses on Oxford Street and there'd be 17 people on them possibly, but um, going over Waterloo Bridge, uh, they're all full, they're all busy and they're all, they're, you know, they all need to be there. And, and it's great now. Working on the buses now is really great because for whatever reason, they're, they're in some, you know, kind of 60-year high right now. They were in the doldrums when I, when I was young and I was working on the buses. They were they were in inexorable decline. And it seemed rather like the railways, that that decline would just keep on going until, you know, bye-bye buses, we don't need you anymore. Um, and in L- London is now bucking the trend. And buses, there are more buses on the street than there's been for a very long time. There's, you know, 8,500 buses out there. We're carrying passenger numbers we haven't seen since the early 1960s at a time when mass car ownership hadn't come in, you know. People use public transport again in this city. I think we're a kind of world leader in, in, in that respect. Somebody who thought we were overpopulated might argue that that's evidence thereof. No, um, because everywhere else in the land, and that would include places where people from elsewhere have arrived, um, bus usership, like anywhere else in Europe, is probably in decline. You know, London, it's not. London, bus usership is really, really strong and healthy. Um, the buses are kind of Cinderella's of London because... They're not as I don't know. They're not as glamorous or as sort of touristy as the underground. But we carry more people than any any, any other form of transport. You know, we're the oldest form of public transport in London. We're the kind of beating heart of London. We really are, and I love being part of that. There's this fantastic institution called Centercom, which is the central radio network that's in that's in radio contact with every single bus on the streets of London. So as you're driving along, you're just getting constant calls from Centercom. You know, you're listening to Centercom, and a lot of it is very small stuff. A lot of it might be a, a small child's been lost in Cricklewood and the police have asked for help. But then, you know, the big events unfold and you start to hear the big news and you just get this minute-by-minute minute picture of London every day of its working life. 
and it's a fantastic thing to listen to you know some of it's funny as well you know the, these people they they crack jokes um, whenever the tube stops working and if you heard how often the tube stopped working as, as many times as a bus driver does you'd be shocked to be honest but there's one guy who always says something like um oh london transport's train set's not working again today you know and you chuckle slightly you know uh, and that's probably how the underground views it you know they're just working with a big train set i want to tap into that sense of uh, of agitation and mm. potential jeopardy among the bus passengers i don't know if i'm lucky or it's because of my size i can't really put it down to that but i don't I ever feel that myself i always seem to be blessed with with calm journeys but what form does that uh, that quality that you're talking about take what would be the extremes right and and do you use buses yeah yeah very much so well it's interesting because often actually big people and for the benefit of the listeners you're a large guy um often attract violence don't they yeah quite right um always from very small people yeah yeah totally absolutely it's the kind of terrier the jack russell syndrome isn't it yeah yeah um yeah i mean if if you want to have some understanding of of how the public feels towards bus drivers one of the things we carry as part of our equipment and you may not believe me but i'll show it to you when you come on my bus is we have a spit kit that's a dna swab thing for when we're spat at we can take a dna sample and give it to the police it's a fair chance that when someone does that to you they're already on the national dna database and something will happen but isn't that horrible isn't that just like so low that in a civilized city like london people will actually spit at you buses aren't as dangerous as i think people perceive them to be necessarily although at certain certain places and certain times they can be i mean night buses are some alternative version of hell a lot of the time and are very dangerous and there are some routes the 29 is the legendary north london route for violence it's even known as the murder bus because people have actually been murdered on it uh, or as a consequence of being on it on average day it's it's not like real violence it's not like real aggression there's a lot of antisocial behaviour. Most people hate school kids. You know, school kids go feral on buses. I mean, they really do. And it's bizarre. There's some schools where they, they'll actually have teachers or occasionally even policemen or at least PCSOs, you know, uh, plastic cops, seeing them onto the bus. They don't get on the bus with them. So sure, they behave at the bus stop when, you know, PC plods looking after them. And then they get on the bus and all hell breaks loose. And, you know, of course, the thing I hate and I, my passengers hate is they bring on the fried chicken you know they leave the fried chicken bones on the seat if not on the floor every pole ends up being greasy with chicken fat god i hate that but there's one thing i don't understand in london which is why um, bus drivers are treated with kind of universal contempt because that's culturally specific it's not universal Uh, a few years ago i did this exchange visit to paris and i was talking to uh, drivers from RATP, the the Parisian Transport Authority, and you know our communication was limited by lang- linguistic differences, but you know busmen the world over can talk to each other, and they were kind of saying, "Oh, isn't it great being a bus driver? You know, all the girls fancy you and stuff like that." And I'm going, "Ah, it's not like that in London. <laughs> you know, it's not a route. It's you know, you know, the glamour of the uniform doesn't count for very much. It's not exactly the ultimate pickup to a being a bus driver." more likely people will abuse you or actually what people do now is totally ignore you they treat you as if you were a piece of the machinery and i don't understand that i don't understand most people i hope wouldn't go into their news agent in the morning and buy a newspaper and completely ignore the news agent you know just slap some money down take the paper 
Um, although you see it happening now a little bit, you know, most people in Sainsbury's still actually want to say something to the cashier. They don't just stand there on their mobile phone. Get on a bus, it's different. They don't look you in the eye. They don't say anything. They don't say please or thank you. And if they do say anything, it's likely to be abusive. And I don't understand that. If you wait for someone, perhaps 50% of the time you get a thank you. The other time, people kind of, they haven't either noticed that you've waited for them or they sort of think, well, that's his bloody job. He can bloody wait for me. I'm not going to say thank you for that, you know. And it's really weird. And you may not believe it, people. Say thank you to bus drivers. Nod to them. You know, just actually make eye contact with them. You know, it's part of our training now. They always say, look at your passengers when they're getting on. And it's interesting. They never used to say that. And, and I do it all the time now. Some people think that you're threatening them that way. You know, that somehow you're looking at them because you're suspicious of them. But most people actually now, if they notice you're looking at them, they will at least acknowledge you with raising an eyebrow or even just a smile or something like that. It makes a difference. It makes a difference to us and we will treat you differently also if, you know, you're a little bit more human and polite to us. I wouldn't be doing my job properly, I suspect, if I didn't mention that uh, I think a reasonable proportion of the bus drivers, and I won't, I won't name the routes I use quite a lot, a reasonable proportion, maybe a third to a half of them, come over as pretty teed off to start off with and of course that may well be just a figure of eight evolution from the reaction of the customers in the first place so it's difficult to say whether it's chicken or egg but i think some people will be encountering quite hostile drivers yeah there's a kind of chicken and egg element to it and it's certainly true and also driving in london traffic and having drivers being total plonkers around you which they generally are you can get a bit stroppy and aggressive and stuff like that and occasionally i find i have to bite my lip or occasionally i don't bite my lip occasionally i ha- i have to use a kind of variety of expressive hand gestures you know and occasionally i remember to stop doing that so it's a system in which there is undoubtedly built in tension but although why that should be between the passenger and the driver is a bit of a mystery to me to be honest with you yeah i think it's a bit of a mystery to me as well and it's interesting i mean i think people would find it hard to believe but we are actually given quite a lot of customer service training now and the bus companies are trying to make some kind of a difference i mean of course we're doing a relatively hard job for quite a modest wage so you know some of the key normal motivators of employment don't apply in our case and it is stressful doing it you know but it's got to be a two-way thing as well there's a weird thing if you ever get on um, one of those little um, small buses, you know, what in bus terms you call a low-decker, like one of those little single-decker buses that go around the back of streets and go through the States, people behave differently on them. It's really strange. They behave as if they're a country bus, especially if it kind of goes down their little road and nothing else can go down it. So I used to drive this bus that goes right through the middle of the Broadwater Farm Estate. I mean, literally goes onto the Broadwater Farm Estate and out the other side, which... A generation ago was a byword for London violence and you know hostility and alienation. And now you get on that and people get on it and it's come to their estate and nobody else comes down there and it delivers them where they want to go. So they say please and thank you and they chat to each other and, and it's, it is just like being on a country bus. The weird thing is they get off at, on the high road and get on a double-decker bus to continue their journey and behave accordingly. You know Their behaviour is actually somehow... Uh, transformed or, or influenced by the mode of transport, which I can't explain to you. There was this little old lady, and I think she must be dead now or, or something's happened to her because I haven't seen her for a long time, but she got on this bus, this little small uh, single-decker bus. She got on it every day, um, and I suspect, to go shopping, and I suspect 
that was because she was lonely because you don't need to go shopping every day and the first time she gets on you get a big shock because you're sitting there in your usual daydream and she says is your lunch driver slap something on the um on the cash tray and there's a little plastic or uh paper bag in which there's something like a bounty and a kit kat and a bag of crisps that have all been in the fridge and are really nice and crisp and i worked out that she must take out two because i had her on the way back home once and she did the same for me so whenever literally whenever she gets on your bus she gives the driver this little bag of food i used to love her and she was so old she used to struggle to get on the bus you know but that's what she did to go to wood green shopping city or whatever for company that's the closest you get to the parisian ideal isn't it <laughs> yeah, totally <laughs> absolutely but you can't imagine what difference it makes to your day to have somebody like that on your bus you know it really really makes your day it really does the camaraderie of the job is actually with other bus crews you know one of the bits of the job i like is when you're driving on your one two three for instance or your two four three which are routes i also do or a one four nine you wave to the other drivers on the route you know and they wave back and you have a chat when you stop and things like that and i like that i like that bit of there's this little group of people all doing the same thing in london who are operating like a kind of closed society in a sense what's your relationship and i probably mean as a profession rather than individually with london's black cab drivers it's a very difficult one um, and you could ask the same about cyclists and my answer would not necessarily be the same as every bus drivers although i hope a lot feel the same way as i do which is um i'll do cabs first I haven't got a straight answer about cabs. Cab drivers hate bus drivers. Can Bus drivers can do some silly things. I'll have to acknowledge this. We all know that cab drivers do some silly things. You know, they will stop straight in front of you or they will stop in an impossible position that's stuck you in a box junction or, or just done something horrible, you know, and I hate that. But on the other hand, they are professional drivers. We're professional drivers. And so there are times when they respond in the way you'd expect them to do as professional drivers. So I wouldn't, I, I haven't got a generalisation about cabs. I, I wouldn't slag them off. I use them. But it's funny, if I get in a cab, I never tell them I'm a bus driver because I suspect that there's a universal contempt by cabs of buses, you know. Um, but I don't think it's necessarily reciprocal. The relationship with cyclists is a bit more complex. And I used to cycle in London, and since being a bus driver, I don't. Um, I've just realised, by the way, because I've heard people previously prepare to talk about cyclists and, and preface it with, I used to cycle in London. That's like some of my best friends are black or, or whatever. Right. They, yeah. well, uh, I think you're about to say something bad about cyclists. No, no, no. The reason I, the reason I don't cycle in London is was just simply that um, being a bus driver, you appreciate quite how dangerous it is. And I don't want to put myself in that danger. No, my attitude to cyclists is that, they're, is that we're lacking quid pro quo in a big way. So... Yes, cyclists should not go through red lights. Yes, cyclists who come up the inside of a bus that's turning left are demented and are, you know, that's a kind of almost suicidal thing to do. Yes, when I'm on the Clerkenwell Road in the morning and I'm ringed with literally 50 cycles, all of them going in different directions, stopped in different places, and all of them unpredictable, that actually increases my stress levels a lot. But on the other hand, cyclists are legitimate road users and we don't do enough to, to protect them you know we should have a proper bus lane network we should have dedicated cycleways we should uh, make other drivers cars and buses and taxis and lorries and particularly lorries more aware of, of cyclists and respond to them better so yes cyclists hold an enormous responsibility to behave better and yes the minority of cyclists give the rest of them a bad name but that's also true of bus drivers of course um 
Uh, irrespective of their, because I, I know there are big campaigns to make road users, motorised road users, more aware of the cyclists around them. But when it comes down to it, you're driving this great big block of a thing, and the fact of the matter is the cyclists fit into all the gaps around you, and it leaves you, it makes it very, very difficult for you to do anything at all, doesn't it? Cyclists do present a real challenge to the buses. There's absolutely no doubt about it. You know, they share bus lanes with us, and half of me thinks that's fine because they are better protected there and they should be protected I, I mean why would i want to see people killed on the streets of london you know god forbid that people get injured let alone let alone killed but it can be frustrating being stuck behind a, a cyclist on a boris bike you know a tourist on a boris bike who doesn't know that a boris bike weighs about as much as a bus you know and is quite difficult to maneuver and therefore wobbles over waterloo bridge at one mile an hour you know unpredictably wobbles and you don't know if they're not going to fall off and so yes it's frustrating sometimes you're trying to pull into a bus stop and there are so many cyclists going past that you just can't get there and yes you do this honestly the 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 fear when you see a cyclist in your near side mirror when you're performing a maneuver and you're thinking what on earth is possessing you to do that you know any sense of logic any kind of intelligence basic intelligence would tell you that's a really stupid thing to do but they're road users you know and well, they, they need but they, to be there. They are road users who, for my money, them and joggers, don't understand killing the speed a little bit and hanging back to see what's happening in front of them. They, there seems to be a general tendency towards keeping going at the same pace no matter what. Yeah, but, I mean, you know, you're just trying to wind me up here, aren't you? You're just being... <laughs> if I, if <laughs> I wanted to wind you up, I'd say rickshaws. Uh, yeah, you don't get me on rickshaws. <laughs> yeah, I mean, those, yeah. Um, no, do you know what I would love to do? And I don't know why it doesn't happen. And I've said this to people, and people have said, yeah, that'd be quite a good idea, but nobody ever organises it, and I, maybe it's, I should do this. But I would actually really like a public forum. I would actually like these discussions to happen publicly between these different competing intre- you know, interest groups. You know, living in a city, there's always friction between different interest groups. You know, as a pedestrian, you know, we hate tourists. When you're, you know, when you're walking down Oxford Street and somebody just stops and you want to use a cattle prod on them, um, it's the same on the roads but somehow we've got to make this work and you know I, I don't want to see cyclists killed interestingly enough although buses have a reputation for doing it buses don't do it very often it does happen but it's a very very rare occurrence um, the last time I knew a bus driver who had a collision with a cyclist which ended up causing the cyclist terrible injuries um, it was down to the cyclist and I know that because there was a court case um, but, you know, it shouldn't be happening. It shouldn't be happening. So if, if somebody wants to do this, then let's do it. Let's have a conversation about it. You know, let's try and agree. I, I don't want to hate cyclists, and I really don't want cyclists to hate me. And if, when cyclists hate me, that actually makes them respond even worse to me as a bus driver. You know, it's just kind of bonkers. We, what we all hate are tipper trucks. They are, they are the scum of the earth, you know. No, this, what's, what's skip, this all skip about? Lurries, skip lorries. You know, skip lorries, for some reason, you cannot drive a skip lorry unless you do have some kind of chip on your shoulder about the rest of humanity, you know, and you have a kind of recklessness bordering on the suicidal. Um, and you don't give a monkeys because um, you're driving this big, huge thing, you know. But um, there, are, there are definitely grades of driver. Scaffold lorries, skip lorries, oh, man, they are, they are just down there. They are below the acceptable, you know, kind of realms of, of humanity, they are. For listeners belonging to either of those categories, it's the RCA... JMU's uh, just next to the Royal Albert Hall. <laughs> yeah, yeah, just come and dump your skip down here. <laughs>
Um, let's uh, let's finish up on the on this side of things. Although I, I'm really enjoying tapping into the driver's eye view. Uh, what? Could we, in terms of promoting a little understanding of the position and the actions of the bus driver, what do you feel pedestrians, passengers, other road users don't get about why you do certain things that you do as a bus driver? That's a good question. Um, the police do this thing. I've seen them do it here in my college, which makes a lot of sense. I've seen them do it in lorries and, and actually should happen with buses, where they turn up with a big lorry, because, of course, we're students. We have students. We have cyclists. And they get a cyclist to sit in the lorry cab and then they run bikes past it. And it just shows where the blind spots are and how little, how limited the visibility is. And it's a very scary experience if somebody's never sat in a large vehicle to work out what you can see and you can't see. And I think that's very, very good training. I don't know why it's not universal. I don't know why we don't have a bus out there and have you know every cyclist sit in the bus cab. TfL once did this brilliant little inf- public information film where they had a guy with a camera sitting in the cab of a tipper truck uh, I think it was a skip lorry, but it's certainly a very large lorry. And he and the camera pans to the wing mirrors, and there's nothing in the wing mirrors. Then the guy gets out of the cab, walks around the lorry, and there on the near side of the lorry are about 10 or 11 cyclists that were completely invisible in his wing mirrors. So there's plenty of that stuff. But, you know, I would just say I'm a citizen. I really believe really, really, really strongly in being a citizen. You know, I don't mean government citizenship tests or stuff like that, but I believe I'm a citizen of London. And that gives me an awful lot of rights, but it also gives me a great deal of responsibility, you know. And we've got to make this city work. And London is one of the cities, most cities are like this, but London has a particular knack of wherever the system needs oil, we tip sand into it, you know. That London, everything works on the basis of a little bit of friction and aggression and tension. And that's fine, that's maybe why we're a very creative city. But nonetheless, as citizens, you need to think about other people around you all the time, you know. When you're walking down the pavement, you know, doing the stupid looking at your phone and texting and stuff like that that's just dumb and 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 antisocial and dangerous you know getting on a bus and speaking into your phone and just tapping your oyster card in and not acknowledging the human being driving the bus that's not good citizenship you know on the other side the bus driver shouting at a passenger or or you know stamps slamming on the brakes too quickly or taking off too quickly and sending some little old lady tumbling that's not good citizenship you know the cyclist going through a red light and and actually just raising somebody's blood pressure really badly, you know, just that terrible moment of stress when you think you're going to kill a cyclist. That's not good citizenship. I'd like to add to that list. Uh, when you hear an ambulance coming and you're getting ready to cross the road as a pedestrian and you just think you're going to nip across before the ambulance gets to you, really bad idea. Yeah, it's, it's just, it's, it's kind of awareness, isn't it? It's just being aware of what's going on around you and thinking, um, you know, Actually, I'm a, I'm not just an island unto myself. You know, what can I do to actually not only ease my passage through the city and make my life comfortable, but to generally make the whole system work? It's rather like when you're driving down the road, this is what a professional driver will do. They'll read the road in front of them and they'll say if they let that vehicle out, the whole system will work a little bit better. Everyone will benefit, you know. So they just flash their lights, out comes the vehicle, you know. The person who doesn't think like that is the person who, and this is a really weird one, people hate getting stuck behind buses. Yes, they're big and they're red and they've got exhaust coming out, you know, although a lot of them are hybrids now. Um, And so they will do anything not to let the bus out or to get into that gap before the bus gets there. And you think, that's somebody who can only see the world 
from their own benefit. They cannot understand this sort of reciprocal understanding that we all need as citizens. If I do that one thing that's helped that person, actually I've helped everyone around me, including myself, you know. It's that simple. I think this is uh, where the, the road meets socialist politics. Is it? Is it so? I mean, I am a socialist, and absolutely, I'm a committed socialist. But I, I, that would just seem to me to citizenship is just it's no, it's, that's a demo, that's a that's a piece of democracy. That's about the values of democracy. You know, democracy only works if you cast your vote and you behave to, towards the greater good of society. I mean, any other kind of understanding, if if you really, really believe that your role in the world is to get everything out of it for your own benefit, of course you fail because. The system doesn't work that way, you know. If we are all totally selfish, then actually all we ever do is get less, not more. There's a degree of self-interest to being a good citizen, to being a good Democrat. Um, And if being a socialist makes you better at those things, then yes, uh, I'm all for that. But um, uh, I I believe in... If I'm a socialist, it's because I'm an optimist about people. It's because actually I like society and I like living in communities of people and I kind of wish them the best and assume that they're going to wish me the best, even though daily experience sometimes lets me down on that one. A rousing uh, creed de corps upon which to draw the podcast uh, gradually to a conclusion. We've managed to successfully avoid talking about several things I really wanted to talk about, including the Routemaster bus, including architecture, just that small thing that we didn't touch on at all. Maybe we need to book him for another appointment at some point tall buildings the thing that all londoners need to talk about is you know what we think about tall buildings we're gonna have to book a return visit aren't we (laughs) yeah yeah please do you're welcome back anytime but maybe you should come on my bus next time you've done my college come on my bus next time love to breakfast in in tottenham bus garage or or the nam as it's known locally (laughs) is that a deal that's a deal okay um you've heard it here first uh we're going to be going there at some point for now joe carr from the rca thanks very much and thank you and that's all for this week my thanks for this week to joe carr thanks to to bernie barkley and mark barr theme and incidental music was by Songs from the Howling Sea. I'm in Quentin Wolf. on a budget we still deserve nice things quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80 percent less than similar brands they have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at 50 dollars, luxurious italian leather bags and so much more plus quince only works with factories that use safe ethical and responsible manufacturing get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with quince go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365 day returns
Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlingbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.